Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Prayer is the common language of the Christocentric life. And that's what we've been talking about. Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Jesus in the center of all things. But as Paul has been focusing in on the common life and the fellowship at Colossae, now he begins to focus forward on the practical work of the kingdom. He is still giving admonitions and will do so through verse 6 of chapter 4. Chapter 3 verse 1 through chapter 4 verse 6 is all the admonitional teaching, the practical teaching of Paul in this book. Here, he comes right at the heart of it. James puts it this way, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous man, James 5.16, you may not feel righteous, but as I've said before, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are righteous. Therefore, your prayers are effective. And so Paul gives right here four directives for effective prayer. And the very first one is pray constantly. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves. Pray constantly. The word there, devote, is proskartereo. Proskartereo, pros meaning toward, and kartereo means steadfastness or endurance. That's the word devotion. Toward endurance. Toward continuance. Pray constantly. That word, those two words put together, proskartereo, mean to do something with continuance. Which is why the translators say, devote yourselves. This is something that is ongoing, it's constant, it's continual, it's Daniel. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10, who continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Praying with continuance. This was the practice of Daniel's life. And so even though the ruling came down from some tricksters trying to get Daniel in trouble, that by law no one could pray to anybody but the king for a certain amount of time, Daniel continued praying constantly morning, noon, and night as a good observant Jew. Now observant Jews have maintained that practice of devotion prayer at least three times a day for 4,000 years. That's the practice. If you would consider yourself an observant Jew, that's part of the deal. The shacharit, which is prayer at dawning. Or the mincha, which is middle. Prayer in the middle. Or the ma'ariv or arvit. Those are all Hebrew words. That means the bringing on or of the evening. And those three are the the names given to the traditional Jewish prayer, morning, noon, and night. Shakarit, Mencha, and Arvit. And so this is part of the deal. And they believe, Jewish people believe, the rabbis taught that morning prayer was handed down by Abraham. That afternoon prayer was brought on by Isaac. And that evening prayer came through Jacob as he wrestled with God through the night. Morning, afternoon, and evening, constant prayer. But understand what Paul is saying when he says devote yourselves to prayer. This this apostle of grace has launched beyond the law. Has launched beyond tradition. This is not about traditional three times a day praying. This is about constantly praying. The three times to the Apostle Paul would not be enough. Not even close. This is not about liturgy. It's about constancy. In other words, pray through the day. 
and don't stop praying. That the practice of prayer becomes as, as constant as breathing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. That we are in and out of prayer with constancy through the day. You ever pray and then find yourself distracted and realize you stopped praying like an hour ago when you meant to keep going? Like you're driving somewhere and you're talking to God and then something comes on the radio and it's and it bothers you. Or someone in the car calls out and asks a question. Or someone cuts you off and suddenly you're out of prayer. A half hour goes by and you go, Oh Lord, I just totally left you hanging. Thankfully we have a patient God because can you imagine how often He's like, And? Hello? Still here? But that happens all the time. I'm not sure I would make a bad judgment on that if we slide right back into it again. Praying with constancy. Recognizing that every time our human hearts recognize that God is there, we talk to Him. We turn to Him. We pray to Him. Now I think praying three times a day is a great idea. And even having scheduled times of prayer, morning devotions, evening prayer, is wonderful. I'm not saying don't do that. Or just counting more liturgical approach to God, I think we need to schedule in. But Paul's talking about devotion to prayer, to pray without ceasing. Now some might say, if I pray without ceasing, I'd lose my job. You know, the kids would never get fed, the cards wouldn't run, the lawn would be overgrown. And so we're defeated before our feet ever leave the front door. I'll pray when I have time. Listen, devoting yourself to prayer is is about both pausing and breathing. Pausing in life to breathe in the Spirit and breathing in the Spirit even without pausing in life. You know, it's, it's prayer on your knees and it's prayer on the go. It's the language of the Christ-centered life. That we are just kind of praying all the time. That we break into prayer all the time. Now my brother Les will do that. Thirteen years ago when we first met, and we, then we first started working together after that and praying together and praying with people, and then we'd, we'd be in a staff meeting together, and Les would just go, well, let's pray about that, and off he'd go. And it used to really bug me. He's praying again. Okay, Mr. Holy, you know. I'm the pa- I'm the supposed to be the more holy one here. I've told Les that, he keeps praying. No, my point is just this, that why not? Why, when we say to someone in the foyer, hey, I'll pray for you, why don't we? Right then. Yeah, you're in my prayers. No, no, they're not. Do it now. Hey, I've got this, this issue. Could you, could you pray for me? Yeah, and let's go. And it becomes our language. And it becomes our behavior. And it becomes the pattern of our life. And by the way, again, you don't have to stop what you're doing to pray constantly. You can be on your way somewhere praying. You can be in the doctor's office praying. You can be working on some business transaction at work and be praying for the wisdom of God and the involvement of God in your day and in your relationships. Pray without ceasing. Devoted prayer is not limited to the cloistered monk or the sanctuary nun. Devoted prayer is, is all the time. Now I know some need a little quiet cloistering. Others need to get out of the closet and into the action. And so we pray constantly. And that's the first admonition here. Devote yourselves to prayer. But then he says a second prayerful admonition. He says keeping alert in it. Secondly, pray watchfully. 
Pray constantly. Pray watchfully. Go back to the observant Jew. Watchful prayer. Alert prayer. Wide awake prayer. The Hasidim, the Hasidim that is the Hasidic Jew in Israel. The first time I saw this, I was so intrigued. Because whether it was praying at the Kotel, the Western Wall, or praying or gathered in Rachel's tomb with Torah open and studying late at night. One night we got to go into Rachel's tomb and there were a bunch of the Hasidic Jews and they were all gathered around with their strange and funny hats depending on what their flavor of Hasidic Judaism was. And Bible's open, but they were all doing the same thing. They do it at the wall, they do it when they're studying, they do it when the Bible's open. The back and forth, constant swaying. I would be seasick. I'd be like, Colossians 4 verse... But this is... And some do it very rapidly. They're going like this, back and forth. And I'm like, that guy's really tired. And some are a little more slow and methodical. But they do this this swaying back and forth. Why? Why do they do it? You know, there's actual biblical reason for it that I find very interesting. They point first to Proverbs 20 verse 27. Which reads, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. And the old rabbis believe that once the lamp of the spirit has been lit by the reading of Torah, like a flame on a wick, they must sway back and forth. So the swaying is like a flame on a wick. As they're studying the Word, they're alert in it. They're like a flame moving, and they're in the, in the Word in that study and in that time of prayer. Furthermore, they will quote Psalm 35, verse 10, which says, All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him, and who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Who's like you, Lord? My bones are saying this, and if the bones are praying, we should be swaying. That's the mentality, truly. If the Bible says my bones are speaking to the Lord, then my bones are active in my prayer, and that's why they do it. Now, are you saying this is how we should start praying, Rick? That would be kind of funky, wouldn't it? Maybe just us, just just the Wednesday night crowd on a Sunday morning. Let's do this. And let's see what the rest of the... the... I don't know if these guys are Hasidic or Pentecostal. What's going on here? But the idea still comes back to a very simple premise, and that is alertness in prayer. That the very practical issue among the observant Jew is staying alert, not getting drowsy. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have fallen asleep in prayer? How many of you have fallen asleep during one of Les's prayers? (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I have fallen asleep in my own prayers. I've come close sitting right up here. Lord, it's just been a long day. Bless the fellowship, Father. (laughs) Keeping alert in your prayer. Keep alert in it, Paul says. But you know, the alertness that he is referring to here is not wakefulness necessarily as much as watchfulness. Pray watchfully. It is the alertness of the watchman on the wall. And the watchman on the wall better be awake, better be alert, better have eyes wide open. For what? For what is coming. Watchful prayer is prayer to the coming of the Lord. It is prayer that is watching and waiting for the return of Jesus. Keeping alert, that phrase is gregorontes in the Greek. 
That phrase is used by Jesus. It's used many times in the scriptures. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42, Therefore be on the alert. Paul says keeping alert in it. Alert for what, Jesus? You do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would not have, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And then he describes this thief in the night coming and taking away all those who were watching. Well, the head of the house, who's the head of the house in this planet? That would be Satan. And he doesn't know. And at some point, Jesus is going to come catch away his followers. And the house is going to be emptied by multiplied millions. And he doesn't know when that's going to happen. Jesus is telling those of us who follow, who are watchful people, to be ready, to be alert, to keep eyes wide open. Matthew 25, 13, he says again, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. So alert and watchful praying isn't just wakeful wiggling. It's vigilant expectancy. How often do your prayers turn to the return? How often when you're praying about whatever issue is going on in your life or in this world, are you looking to the return of Jesus and finishing off by just saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Then pray constantly, but pray watchfully. Keep on the alert. Jesus says it again, Luke 21.36. Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray constantly, pray watchfully, and he says pray thankfully. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving. You know, the thread of thankfulness is woven throughout the Bible and is heavy in this letter to the church at Colossae. I was sharing with Glenn a moment ago that I ran across something. We, we studied verses uh, 13, or 15 through 17 of chapter 3 on Sunday, right? And I thought I exhausted that bad boy. I thought we covered just about every word. I completely missed something. Note this, chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be what? Thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with what? Thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It's a triune thanksgiving. And Paul lays it out one verse after another. He keeps coming back to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, be thankful, be thankful. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Thankful prayer. Down in verse 12 of of chapter 1, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Chapter 2, verse 7, he says... Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Thanksgiving, gratitude, thankfulness, it's all over the place. And I'll tell you what, if our prayers are anything, they ought to be thankful. Constant prayer and watchful prayer, thankful prayer. And then Paul gives a fourth directive for effective prayer. Verse 3. 
praying at the same time for us as well. That God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, lesson I have an agreement. Some of you are aware of this. That when I preach on Sundays, He prays. And He's praying that the Word will be received. And He's praying that the Word will be heard. He's praying that I make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And so we, we partner. You're not just hearing from me on Sunday mornings. You're hearing from the Spirit because I'm preaching the Word and Les is praying in the Spirit and together we're working on this. Because I don't know how to pray or how to, how to speak or teach as I should. I need the Spirit to do that. Praying openly. That's the fourth one. Constantly, watchfully, thankfully, and then pray openly. That is, fill our prayers with, with the open door. So another question, how often do you pray for the open door? How often do you, and if you don't, that's, that's fine, maybe it's just kind of a, an alert here, an eye-opener, how often on the way to services on a Wednesday or Sunday night are you praying, Lord, open wide the door for your word to get in tonight? Lord, may we be like Philadelphia, the church of the open door. Revelation 3.8, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power. And have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Open praying, praying openly. That is that the door would remain open for the word to come rushing in, and for the word to go out. That we would be open door-minded people. And Paul is so focused on this, it's not the only time he asks for this kind of prayer in his letters. In fact, in the parallel passage, in the next letter he's going to send off, that's to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 6, verse 18, he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray openly. And we talk often about evangelism. I bring this up that we are to be an evangelical people which is not a political voting block. To be evangelical is to be gospel minded. It's to be sharing Jesus. And and, and sometimes that's difficult. We go through our week and we're not sure how do I bring this up and I really want to but I just I'm not that overt I'm not that outspoken and and then a week goes by and I haven't really shared. You know what you can do? You can start right now, here tonight, praying openly. God, give voice to the message of the gospel from this fellowship out. In my life, in the lives of my brothers and sisters, may one person who doesn't know Jesus come in the door on a Sunday and hear the word because your spirit is tapping on the heart. Pray for the for the outreach of the gospel. Cheryl asked me the other day, she said, would you ever you know, have like a, 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 an outreach concert at the bridge? And I said, like what? She described this, this opportunity that's out there, something that we could do to have you know, a, a Christian artist come in and do a concert and, have, and invite people from the community and, and whatever. And I said, you know, I'm not opposed to that kind of thing, and I'm really not. But to me, outreach begins with praying, and with one person inviting a friend to come meet Jesus. 
You know, we, we, we get so focused on outreach being a program. Outreach is you saying to your neighbor, hey, want to come to church with me Wednesday night? It's really weird. We all kind of sit there and sway. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's so simple. It's not complicated. And the best way for someone to come to know Jesus is through someone who knows Jesus. Why? Because there's already a relationship there and there will be follow-up. As opposed to someone coming off the street because some big name, you know, ex-American Idol alumni is coming to sing. Okay, great. But to change a life requires a life in relationship. Pray openly is all I'm saying. That we would have every opportunity to take the word over the threshold and into the world. Pray for the open door. Again, the primary purpose of our Christ-centered continuance on this planet is the gospel. I told you before, the reason why we're not raptured out of here the moment we believe is because we now are on mission. And that is the mission of the gospel of Jesus. That's why you're here. And your presence on this planet may be the salvation of one person. Praise the Lord. One more got saved. It's not about the numbers. It's not about stacking it up. Oh yeah, I was used by God to save multiplied millions. I'm a Billy Graham. Praise God for Billy Graham. But one person may never get to heaven if they don't hear it from you. And if in your lifetime God uses you to save one, hallelujah, that is a life saved forever. Pray openly. Pray thankfully. Pray watchfully. And pray constantly. Verse 5. And then he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. That word conduct, let's redefine it because it's a very specific word already used in this letter. In fact, in the key verse of this letter. The word conduct is peripateo, which is walk. Correctly translated, he says, walk with wisdom toward those on the outside. Walk with wisdom among the wanderers. Colossians 2.6 Therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord so parapeteo in Him. Walk in Him. And now Paul says walk with wisdom. You're walking as you were saved. You're walking with wisdom for the purpose of the outsider. It's an interesting translation of the word and it's probably a good translation. It's not outsider like outcast or someone who's not welcome but it's someone who doesn't know the inner wonders and glory of a relationship with Jesus. Walk with wisdom. Because you're being watched. You're being scrutinized. The moment someone knows you're a Christian, you are being analyzed. You may not want to be, but you are. It's what's taking place. People may not even realize they're scrutinizing you. But I'll tell you what, once they know you're a Christian and you mess up in front of them, they'll mention it. I thought you went to church. Oh, I hate hearing that. I will say I do, Mormon church. <laughs> Walk with wisdom. <laughs> Paul says, hey, listen, use the scrutiny. Use the analysis. If people are watching you, use it for the kingdom. Conduct yourselves. Walk with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. And then he says this, I love it. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, to the Gentile, hearing Paul say, your speech should be seasoned with salt, the Gentile will go, okay, I get that. It keeps the fruit fresh. You know, it it has a preservative quality to it. But to the Jew hearing that, 
There's a much deeper implication here. Seasoned with salt. I think about Old Man Marley. You know who I'm talking about? Old Man Marley from the first Home Alone movie? And he's the neighbor next door. He's walking up and down with the, with the bucket of salt and he's salting and he's got the shovel. And, and of course, Kevin and his older brother, Buzz McAllister, are up in the bedroom and they're cousin. And they're getting ready to leave. And it's that night before Kevin gets left home alone. And as they stand there in the bedroom, Buzz goes, hey, check it out. And he runs over to the window and they all go to the window. And they're looking out the window. And they look down there. And Buzz goes, ever hear of the South Bend Shovel Slayer? <laughs> That's him. Back in 58, murdered his whole family and everyone on this block. And he's been hiding out in this neighborhood ever since. (laughs) And his his cousin says, why don't they arrest him? Not enough evidence to convict. He says, he walks up and down the streets every night, salting the sidewalks. And his cousin says, maybe he's just trying to be nice. Buzz says, no way. See that garbage can full of salt? That's where he keeps his victims. The salt turns their bodies into mummies. I love the movie, okay? I won't quote the whole thing. But turns out, turns out old man Marley was just trying to be nice. He was just salting the sidewalk so people wouldn't slip on the snow and on the ice. Guess what, gang? That is salted speech. Speech that is salted with grace is speaking such that people wouldn't fall on the ice of their lives on the snow and the the frozen world that we live in. It's salted speech to get people safely home. Is there enough evidence to convict you of salting the sidewalks of your neighborhood with grace? Is that the weirdest application of a movie right there? Thank you very much. The salting here though, for again, for my frame of mind, I read Seasoned with Salt and I thought of Old Man Marley. For the Jew or for the, the Gentile there in Southwest Asia, they might have read that and gone, "Okay, um, yeah, salt's an important seasoning, keeps things fresh." For the Jew, much, much more, because salt in the Hebrew Scriptures is a recurring theme, very, very Jewish and very, very Jesus. In fact, three places the Hebrew Scriptures speak of the salt of the covenant. Remember, Paul's a Jew, and though he's speaking to and writing to a largely Gentile audience, he's still Jewish in his thinking. So when Paul says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, listen to this, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. Why? So that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Well, the offering's just going to go on the fire. That's, that's interesting, a little strange. Numbers 18, verse 19, it's repeated. All the offerings of the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord, to you and to your descendants after you. And then again in Second Chronicles 13, verse 5, Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? What does that mean? Well, I think Jesus gives us the best explanation. He draws off of this very Jewish thinking of salt. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 49, he says, For everyone will be salted with fire. 
Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty? And then he says this, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And I think perhaps Paul is thinking about that when he says, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, so you will know how to respond to each person. Have salt in yourselves. The covenant of salt spoke to the Jewish mind of preservation. Salt was something that does not break down in the heat of fire or tribulation or affliction. And salt is the seasoning that brings about the preservation of life through salvation. Covenant of salt means an eternal covenant. It means it is preserved by God, it is ongoing, it is unstopping. And so for us to be a people whose very speech is seasoned with salt, our speech, our language, our talking, especially again, as we walk with wisdom among the outsiders, is to bring people to faith in Jesus. Which means when you're with the non-believer, you're not yucking it up with the non-believer with things, jokes, comments, language, attitudes, comments that are not godly. That's not seasoned with salt. That's like processed sugar. (laughs) Because it's not going to save anybody. But to have a speech that is seasoned with salt means that I am on the alert in prayer. I am praying for people. And when opportunity comes to talk to someone who doesn't believe, I am pouring out grace with the prayerful hope of preserving their lives for salvation and a relationship with God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good should be on our lips. Psalm 34, verse 8. The covenant of salt. And that's the end of the teaching. That's the end of the practical application of Paul for the the church at at Colossae and we'll also see also for the church at Laodicea. This was a letter that was intended to be circulated. But what's fascinating, and I've come to love this, we're not done. Because the end of every single one of Paul's letters, he gives recommendations or accommodations and greetings from fellow workers. He always leaves a list of what I would call mentionable saints. And even from these saints, there is so much to be learned about the Christ-centered life. So follow this through with me. In verse 7 he says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus is one of the letter carriers. We've talked about that before. And Paul is making accommodations for him or, or, or recommendation. He's saying, this, this guy's my guy. I'm just letting you know in the letter that he's bringing to you, written uh, to be sent to you, that I chose him and and I'm sending him. I'm putting my stamp of approval on Tychicus. Good old Tich. I love this guy. Because we see him kind of throughout the scriptures in surprising little ways. Most people don't talk about St. Tychicus. But he was a fellow worker. He was a faithful man. He's a traveler. He's a courier. And he's a speaker. And all of these things we glean from the Scriptures about Tychicus. He journeyed with Paul at the very end of his third missionary journey, Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Part of the group that came with Paul to bring the the offerings and the contributions back to Jerusalem and to Judea. Tychicus was one of these guys. Tychicus is a faithful courier, trusted by Paul. He brings the letter both to Colossae and he will carry the letter to Ephesus. Tychicus. And he even speaks for Paul... 
to and from these places, Colossae, Ephesus, perhaps other places we don't know, he's kind of like Paul's personal press secretary. You know, he's the Sean Spicer of the day. And he is speaking for Paul. And when things are confusing or maybe not understood in the letter that Paul sends, Tychicus is there to explain what Paul was saying. And his name, Tychicus, we say Tychicus, it's actually Tuhichas. And Tuhichas (laughs) means literally to hit or to strike the mark. As with a weapon. Firing an arrow and hitting the target. Tychicus is a guy on target. His name also means to fall in with or to meet with people. And that's what he does. He travels for Paul. He's a courier for Paul. He's meeting with the churches for Paul. That's our friend Tychicus, our brother. But he didn't travel alone. And with him, verse 9, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number. He's from Colossae. They, that is Tychicus and Onesimus, will inform you about the whole situation here. Now you remember Onesimus. It hasn't been that long since we studied Paul's letter, single chapter letter to Philemon, that Onesimus is that useless runaway slave who became the useful redeemed servant. And I mention him and pause just for a moment to say he's on his own errand here to Colossae. Remember, while Tychicus and Onesimus are carrying this letter to the church, Onesimus is carrying another letter to his old master, Philemon. And he is coming now to talk to Philemon. And I'll give you a little hint about Sunday's teaching. At the end of the practical section in chapter 3 where Paul is talking about slaves and masters, he spends more time on slaves and masters than on any other person. Why? Perhaps because a slave is coming home to have to deal with his master and the master with his slave. And so that's Onesimus. And we will meet Onesimus and Tychicus someday in the heavens. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And Aristarchus, another great uh, man of faith, along with Barnabas' cousin Mark about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also, Jesus who is called Justice. Now, many of you Bible students know Jesus was a very common name, especially among Jewish people. Joshua. Yehoshua. And so, Jesus, as we think of Jesus, a little different. Uh, We think of the one and only. But there were many Jesuses running around, and so there was a Jesus whose name was also Justice. You've got Aristarchus, you've got Mark, you've got Justice, and all three of these guys should be taken together. Looked at and considered together. But let's do that as soon as we look at them individually. Aristarchus, his name? I love his name, it means best ruler. Or, if you divide out his name, because remember, a lot of Greek names and words are, are you know compound words. His name is made up of two words, Ariston and Arxo. Aristarchus comes from those two words. Arxo means first. Ariston was the name that Greek people gave to the midday snack. It literally means something that is not at a set time. You can have it at any time of the day for refreshment or for nourishment. So really, he's best ruler, or you could translate his name first snack. (laughs) Or maybe like this, first refreshment. Aristarchus is not a first responder so much as a first refresher. 
There's something in the name of one who comes for the refreshment of other people. And Aristarchus took a beating for the faith in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. Traveled with Paul all the way after that to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 20. And then stayed with Paul all the way to Rome and his own apparent imprisonment, Acts 27. Aristarchus was a first refresher, at least, to the Apostle Paul. And then you have Mark, uh, the second of this uh, threesome. Aristarchus, and then Mark, Marcus. Marcus in the Greek, which means defense. John Mark, the one-time defensive deserter, you know, who bugged out on Paul and Barnabas in the first missionary journey, got as far as the Isle of Cyprus, and it just got too hard. So young Mark left Paul and Barnabas and split the group for home and mama. And Paul was not happy about this. And on the second missionary journey, you know the story. He said, we're not taking Mark. Barnabas, son of encouragement, says, oh, we've got to take Mark. Give him a second chance, Paul. And Paul's like, the gospel's too important. I will not travel with Mark this time. And Barnabas says, well, I will. I want to give him a choice, a chance, an opportunity. Barnabas sails back over to Cyprus with Mark, and Paul takes Silas and heads up around the horn. And the two, as far as we see in the Acts, would never travel together again. There was a split, there was a break, there was a disagreement, and they were unable to do ministry together after that. But what's remarkable about Mark is that in the long run, he wasn't the defensive deserter, he served in the defense of the gospel, writing one of the only four accounts that we've got. That Mark is the one who put pen to paper, probably based on Peter's sermons, given in Rome, but he's the one who wrote the book of Mark. He's the one who suddenly becomes very valuable. In fact, in Paul's second imprisonment in Rome, he writes to Timothy and says, 2 Timothy 4.11, Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in service. What does that tell you? It tells us that there's no substitute for mileage. It tells us that the youngest believer who maybe has big dreams and great hopes and aspirations to serve the Lord, but blows it, what do they need? They need time. They just need a little experience. They need, as Barnabas provided for him, a little opportunity. It's the one thing that younger believers need that they can't get immediately, and that is experience. Time. Paul told Timothy, don't lay hands on someone too quickly. You know, don't, don't rush the process here. It is a process. I didn't get that. I mean, I was the young youth pastor, age 24, who thought I should have it all now. I went into youth ministry thinking, I'll spend about a year at this piddly little church of 200 people, but I'm going to be at a mega church before I'm 30. I've shared with you before, I was highly ambitious. Praise God, He knows how to rip the rug of ambition out from under you. Thank God that He got me to a place where when He asked me 13 years ago, are you willing to teach a Bible study for 20 people and if it never gets any bigger, is that okay with you? Just asking you, He says graciously, want to make sure you're alright with this, Rick. And I was. But when I started in ministry, I was not. Bigger was better. That's what I had to have. And I chased that down. I needed time. I needed experience. I needed to realize that all the things that I thought I knew, I didn't really know. 
And I'm not saying that, you know, those of you in your early 20s, I'm not saying you don't know anything. Many of you are brilliant. In fact, many of you far surpass where I was in that age and at that time of my faith. But I can promise you something. You don't know what you think you know. And I can't even tell you what you should know. Only time and experience can do that. Let the Lord work. Mark became incredibly valuable, such that it looks like he's now popping all over Asia, working with people, you know, probably working with Barnabas there in Asia on other missions that Paul wasn't even a part of. In fact, look at the way Paul writes about him. Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. Mark may not even be with Paul at the time. Paul just may have gotten word that Mark was heading that way eventually, so he says, hey, Mark's coming, so welcome him too. But what's happening is Barnabas is working and Mark is working and Paul is working. Aristarchus is working. Tychicus is going. Everybody's on the move for the gospel. Everybody's working together. And it's a beautiful march for the kingdom. You need time. You need need patience. Jesus said in Mark 4, interesting that's in Mark 4, verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Well, I want the grain now, toasted, with butter and jam. I want the full bread. That doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain. Then the maturity, young or old, new or long timer, no matter what we think we know, what we really need to know is that we're walking with Christ. Because I promise you, the longer you walk with Christ, the deeper your maturity and walking with Jesus, He will get you there. And I still have a long way to go myself. And by the way, in the mention of Barnabas here, I find that fascinating. Because there seems to be, simply by the mention, there seems to be reconciliation. And if nothing else, a recognition of their shared mission together. I would lump Barnabas in. Some commentators do this along with Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. I would lump Barnabas in with this collective of four people that Paul is referring to here. But one more thing before I I, I explain why they all go together. Justice. Justice's name in Greek is Eustace. I had a, uh, a great uncle whose name was Eustace, and my dad told me they always called him useless. I thought that was funny. But Eustace, justice, means one who is just, or just one. And we know nothing more about him. All we know is his name, that he's lumped in with these people. He's with Aristarchus, Mark, and Barnabas. And then Paul describes them all. Note this in verse 11. He describes them as, These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Interesting. From the circumcision. Possibly that all men were not only Jewish... When Paul refers to the circumcision, it's not always with, you know, glowing uh, accolades. When he talks about the circumcision, (laughs) these are not just Jewish people he's referring to. He's talking about those who are more conservative in their Judaism than he is. More legalistic, perhaps, than Paul. They have a shared heritage, but Paul is the apostle of the heart set free. 
Paul got inundated with the grace of God in his own life such that he was all about the grace and not about the law and not about the legalism and not about all the traditions that some of the more conservative Jewish Christians said, you got to keep these things. And Paul said, why? That's not what saves us. But here we have a group of these guys, these three or four, if you include Barnabas, and I think we should, who are from the circumcision, more legalistic, more conservative than Paul himself. And you know what? The older I've gotten and the more experience I've gotten, the more I've recognized, that's okay. There are more conservative Christians than me. There are more legalistic people than me. That's all right. I have discovered that it's the legalistic ones who can be guilt-tripped into more serving, so I'm good with that. I'm just kidding. But there are... We're on a gamut, aren't we, of, of understanding and of theology, and there are people who are more conservative in their faith than you are. As, as far as more kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And there are people who are more liberal in their faith than you are, a little more loose with things than perhaps you would be comfortable with. We're all kind of on that continuum. I think as long as we're in the Word together, we're going to be okay. As long as we know we are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be fine. But some people are more conservative. And here are the circumcision. But Paul also says, and note this, they are the only fellow kingdom workers of the circumcision. And that is tragic. These guys are model Jewish Christians, Paul says. Yes, they are more traditional. Yes, they keep those rules and regulations. But they are serving the kingdom. These guys are doing it. So if they want to keep the festivals, fantastic. They want to keep Shabbat every week, wonderful. But preach Jesus. And yet he says, these are the only ones. What does that say about the rest of the Jewish believers in Christ. At this point, about 62 AD, is the Jewish church so close off to the Gentiles that Paul can only list a handful from the circumcision who are serving the kingdom? Well, at least this group proved to be an encouragement to Paul. He uses that word encouragement, which does, interestingly, piggyback off of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I wonder if Paul was thinking about that. And I wonder if perhaps, again, Barnabas was an encourager to Paul. Bottom line is, these encouraging uh, men of the circumcision, faithful brothers, model Jewish Christians, are with him in this. Remember that Paul's greatest ministry heartache is that his own people were, were rejecting their Messiah. But thankfully there are these guys, and it reminds me, you know what, I am not alone. When my heartache is aching for my people, I'm not alone. Someone else aches for my people too. His name is Jesus. And if you ache for someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus, please know that He is aching with you, and He is calling out with you, Let your prayers for that person, those people, be constant, knowing God loves them more than you do. Well, verse 12, we get to Epaphras. We've talked about Epaphras. We did a whole teaching on him. He is one of your number. That is a Colossian, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you, And for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis, Epaphras. Remember, his name means 
lovely. As in Isaiah 52.7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. And Epaphras is that planter, cultivator of the church at Colossae, passionate in prayer for his people, serving alongside Paul, probably also in chains. Verse 14. And then we come to Luke. The beloved physician sends you his greetings, and also Damas. Luke and Damas. Dr. Luke, writer of Luke and Acts, writing to most excellent Theophilus, those two outstanding treatises on Jesus and on the beginnings of the church. Man, what would we not know if not for Luke? Luke, the investigative reporter, who penned, by the way, the words of Shimon, the old man who was at the temple when Jesus was being dedicated. Luke was the one who dredged up this information. Luke chapter 2, verse 30 For my eyes have seen your salvation, says Shimon, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Why would that be amazing that Luke was the one who got that and and included that in his gospel? Because Luke's name, Lucas, is light giver. Light giver. And he picks up on the fact that Jesus, even in His birth, even at His eight-day-old baby dedication, was a light of revelation to who? The Gentiles. Which is what Lucas was. A Gentile himself. I wonder how he must have felt as he was compiling the Gospel of Luke and wrote a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Luke, the outsider who was a Gentile, saying... This is for me too. Lucas, the light giver. And Damas, whose name means governor of the people. In his letter to Philemon, Paul refers to Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke. All five of them in that letter, all five of them in this letter, which we talked about before, is why I believe that Philemon and Colossae were sent together. Were kind of co-letters that went with Tychicus and Onesimus at the same time. But I'm sorry to have to report a latter development here regarding one Damas. Here he's mentioned, he's named. In Philemon, he's also mentioned as one of the fellow workers. But then in 2 Timothy, about six years, five or six years after this letter, Paul is writing to Timothy at the end of his life, and he writes, 2 Timothy 4.10, Damas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone home to Thessalonica. How sad. Here we have a fellow worker in the Lord. Could be any one of us. Could be someone sitting here tonight. Could be someone on staff at the bridge. Could be a a, a pastor. A fellow worker. A laborer for the Gospel. But he loved the present world. And went home. Deserting Paul. There is, a, there is a heaviness in that verse when Paul writes to Timothy. In fact, there are several heavinesses as Paul writes to Timothy about feeling deserted, feeling left alone, about people who have left him left and right. And Damas is one of those. And it is a sad story. I, I mentioned this to, to Rachel earlier, and she said, that's always sad to me every time I hear his, his name. You know, because I know it's just kind of a bad ending. And it is. Damas, now get this. Damas is who Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13.22 when he said, 
the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns? This is the man who hears the word, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth or the cares of the world choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. From fellow worker to choked out. That's Damas. This fellow worker, this co-laborer of Paul's in Rome, lost it. Lost what? His salvation? I didn't say that. We may yet see Damas in heaven. I would assume we would, if he's saved by grace. But I'll tell you what he did lose, his value in the kingdom. And that's an issue all of us have to deal with, that love of this earthly kingdom will stifle love of the coming kingdom. That the cares of the world and the worries, the deceitfulness of wealth, those things that grab at us every single day, which is why we ought to pray constantly, those things will pull us down from our love of the kingdom of God. That's why we pray watchfully. So our eyes are to the kingdom and to the king, constantly seeking him in this world that would pull us down rather than allow us to rise on the heights of prayer in hopefulness that the kingdom will come. Damas, he just lost his interest. And therefore, what does Jesus says? It becomes unfruitful. Damas went from a fruitful life for the kingdom to unfruitful. Was he lost? I'm not saying that. But he certainly lost out on his usefulness in the kingdom of God. And then verse 15, Paul goes on. He says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. We don't have that letter. The letter to the Laodiceans. Paul wrote them one. The Holy Spirit decided that one's not going to be in the canon of Scripture, so we don't have it. But it was written to them. Paul wrote to Laodicea. Paul wrote to Colossae and said, exchange letters. I want them to read what you've got, and I want you to read what they've got. Because both of them had doctrine that Paul was passing along to the church. But note this, Nympha is her name. I was sharing with staff earlier that this is a confusing verse because some commentators say it's Nymphus, which is masculine. Some say Nympha. The problem is in the translations we have that say, that say Nympha, the, the feminine, it, it often says Nympha and the church that is in his house. But Nympha is feminine, so it would be her house. But then in the translations to say Nymphus, the masculine form of this name, it says in her house. It's masculine, it says her What's going on here? You know what? The wisdom in the study and, and more conservative scholars say, no, it's Nympha, it's a woman. And her house could be his house, could also be their house. It is probably a woman who is named Nympha. Nymphus was not also, by the way, a common male name. If you were Greek, well, you know, the, the, the Greek mythology, what was a nymph? A nymph in Greek mythology was a beautiful woman who was like there were tree nymphs, you know, that came out of the trees, or, or water nymphs, or mountain nymphs. Well, that's not Christian. Well, it's in the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> but the nymph was that, that beautiful, feminine uh, creature that would come magically and mystically in Greek mythology out of nature. And so it was a very common Greek name, Nympha. Here we have Nympha who comes right out of Gentile Greekness and is now saved and has a church in her house. 
Some have surmised perhaps she was a wealthy widow and provided for the church to meet in her house. Whatever her situation, the proper meaning of the name Nympha is bride. She's a bride of Christ. She was a Gentile. She was once an outsider. Now she's part of the bride. She is now married in. I love it. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And that's Nympha and that's Rachel and that's Doug and it's Mike and it's all of us. The bride of Christ. Now, Nympha and the church in her house were among the Christians of Laodicea. And there are no early indications, at least, of Laodicea's later lukewarm lethargy. You know, what we read in, in Revelation chapter 3, that it becomes a very lukewarm church. And Jesus, boy, He lays into them. He warns them seriously. You are lethargic. You're neither hot nor cold. I should spit you out of my mouth. But at this point, 62... We don't know that about Laodicea. It may not even have really started to take place. John wrote 30 years later. So what's interesting to me here, and I just want to mention this, that there was the church in Nympha's house. That would be a small group. And then there was the church in Laodicea. And then there's the church in Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis. And then there's the church throughout all of Southwest Asia. And then there's the church throughout all of Rome. You see the marvel of the church? It is from family to fellowship to town to empire to humanity. The church is all of that. The church is where two or three are gathered together in His name and where 5,000 are gathered together in worship. That's the church. And the Christ-centered church happens where there's two people sharing Jesus or where there's multiplied millions around the throne of God. That's the church. And I think we should be engaged in all of it. I am not a house church guy. I am not a big church guy. I'm a church guy. And the church is all of us. It might be a group of guys meeting at Wendy's for lunch. You guys still doing Wendy's? DQ. DQ now. Okay, so DQ on Fridays. Please impose. Thursdays. You're changing everything on me. But it's the church. The church is two sisters meeting for coffee and prayer once a week. That's the church. I love it. That's what this is about. And that's what Paul is on to. And as these letters go out, and these people go out, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, we get down to Luke and Nympha, not Demas because he went home, but everybody else are just doing the work of the church. And across 2,000 years, from two to three gathered to multiplied millions... How does that work? I'll show you. Verse 17. Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. We don't know if this is exhortational or a rebuke. It kind of feels a little bit like a rebuke. At least a strong admonition. Aristarchus, get after it. In other words, you have a ministry that is unfulfilled. Fulfill it. Aristarchus, we talked about him before. He may be Philemon's son. He's mentioned in the letter to Philemon. Philemon and and Philemon's wife, Mrs. Philemon, I forget her name. And then there's Aristarchus. So he may be a son of the family or he may be a mission pastor there in Colossae. But whatever his position is, there's a task unfinished. Fulfill your ministry. 
Take heed to the ministry. Fulfill it. Paul says the same thing to Timothy, by the way. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's how it gets done. That's how two or three meeting in Nympha's house becomes the church throughout Asia. Because they're fulfilling the ministry. And by the way, the word fulfill is in the present active imperative, which means continually fulfill. How is that possible? You either fulfill it or you don't. No. When you are serving Jesus, you are in the process of continual fulfillment. Because the fulfillment of our call on earth is not done until we're called home. Jesus Christ fulfilled the old law. Fulfilled everything necessary for our salvation that we might now, as Christ-centered people, continually fulfill this ministry. And that's what he says to Aristarchus. That you may continually fulfill it. Take heed. Stay with it. Keep going, man. Stay on it. And remember this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37 says, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, Damas, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving, the saltiness, you might say, of the soul. The covenant of salt. Fulfill your ministry. Allow Paul's words to ring in your heart tonight. What in your ministry remains unfulfilled? What is the task yet before you? Because, brothers and sisters... You're sitting here breathing tonight, you have a task unfulfilled. If your task was fulfilled, you'd be home. God would remove you. If you were done with everything you were required to do and called upon to do, you would be home. Praise the Lord. But if you're here, you're unfulfilled. You're not done. You're not finished. Neither am I. Fulfill the task. Fulfill the ministry. Keep at it. Now, Paul ends with three final comments in his final farewell. He says in verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He does this in all his letters. He puts his own signature, uses his own hand to sign off at the bottom. And I think that as Paul did that, imagine. He takes the pen, perhaps from Tychicus, whoever the scribe was, takes the pen and goes to sign his name and his chains clink together. And he says, I write this with my own hand. Oh, remember my chains. Remember my chains. Perhaps Paul even forgot. As he's standing there and he's, he's sharing and he's speaking the words that are going to go out to Colossae through the Spirit. Man, he's just downloading this marvelous teaching and doctrine and practical stuff. And, and the person there is scribing along and then Paul says, okay, I'll sign off now. Hands him the pen and he goes to sign and there are the chains. And he says, oh yeah, and remember my chains. I'm signing it. Remember this. Remember my chains. Remember my imprisonment. And the word there for imprisonment is chains or bonds. Why does he write that? If you know Paul, like we're getting to know, really getting to know Paul here, he's not trolling for sympathy. He's not saying, woe is me. His use of the word remember throughout his letters is almost always connected to prayer. 
When Paul says keep in remembrance or we keep you in remembrance or you are in our memory or remember this or remember that, it's almost always connected to praying. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. Join me. How can I join Paul in prison in Rome? Pray, man. Pray, ladies. How can we join in the work of the Gospel throughout the world, the work that is going on in Asia right now among Muslims? How do we join that? We pray. How do we join in in the Gospel work of our brothers and sisters in this fellowship when we're not together? We pray. Paul is asking the church at Colossae and the church at Laodicea, man, every time you remember I'm sitting here in prison, I'm sitting here in chains, let that be a stimulus to prayer. What kind of prayer, Paul? That you be set free? No, he never asks for that. He doesn't say, pray for my freedom. What he says is, pray that the Lord will open up to us a door for the Word. Pray that the Word just keeps going out. Remember my chains, he says. And then he ends just as he began. Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, he said to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he ends the letter, grace be with you. In all of Paul's other letters, he asks the Lord Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ to dispense the grace. In this letter, he just says, grace be with you. Is he leaving Jesus out? No. The reality is this is such a Christological letter. He doesn't even need to mention again what's clearly intended, and that is that Christ is at the center. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this another letter, another encouragement, another call to the Christ-centered life. Lord, I have really enjoyed hanging on that phrase and thinking about being Christocentric. But Jesus' focus right in the middle of everything. And so that, Father, even as we say, I'll pray constantly and watchfully and thankfully and openly, even as we seek to walk in wisdom, Lord, among those who are on the outside, even as we ask that our speech be salted with grace, even as we look at the examples, good and bad, of of our fellow saints, oh, Lord, Lord, we pray Christ Jesus at the center of our lives. The first one we think about, Lord, when we open our eyes in the morning. The one we come back to time and time again throughout the day. The one we look to. The one we long for. The one we watch for. The last name on our lips before we drift off to sleep. The name of Jesus. Oh Lord, make us a Christ-centered people. And fathers, we continue on in your word and future studies, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise. As we continue to study, go on into Ephesians, first and second Thessalonians, Philippians, all these other the focus, Lord, we know will shift and move slightly here and there. But we, may we never lose sight of the centrality of Jesus in this faith and in all the teachings. Give us Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's just 
Let's ponder that. Let's sing this song together and ponder Christ in the middle. And Les, I'm going to actually ask you to come up and just pray over us as soon as we're done singing this. Okay? Let's sing together. sound of the name of Jesus every knee will bow of beings in heaven and being on earth and under the earth should and must bow their knee to the name of Jesus and Lord Jesus we proclaim your name this night over this fellowship that you've given us to be a part of that your rule and reign would be established over us and Lord, we sang at the beginning to pour out Your Spirit. And we ask, Spirit of God, will You reveal more of Jesus Christ to us? Jesus, You said He won't speak of Himself. He'll speak of Me. And I ask that You would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to this gathered assembly and those that we represent. That there will be a move in this season that will give us insight into Jesus Lord, I, I, I look at Your Word and I look at Scripture that I read again and again and all of a sudden I see something I never saw before. Would You open our eyes to see, to hear, to know, to understand the Lordship authority of Jesus Christ? And Lord, Peter says it well. He says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Jesus Christ, You are the living God. And we proclaim that. We proclaim the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you've imparted something to us by your Spirit that is way beyond anything that can be comprehended by the logical mind. Lord, we're not throwing our brain away, but we recognize that the spirit man or woman within us only has a capacity to understand what the love of God is really all about. God's the love that He gave. He gave Jesus, and you've never stopped. And I pray that you would continue to enhance our capacity to receive the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Word says simply, to as many as received Him, to them He gave power to become children of God, even to them that believe on His name. That's an ongoing, continuous action of a supernatural process. And Lord, as we sang that at the beginning, pour out Your Spirit. Oh, that is my heart cry for all of us, that You would pour out Your Spirit mightily upon us. And then as we have received, now Jesus, You said, freely You have received, now free to give. Lord, we're here to receive, and now we're ready to give what You've given to us as well. In Jesus' holy name I pray.
Amen.